You think about Europe, right? That's been around forever. It's never going to change. But what would change is a chair or a light bulb or the curtains or, you know, some small element that makes you feel like you're in an other, another world. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. On this episode, Debbie talks with Ina Mayhew about her career designing for movies and TV shows and about how the virus may change the very nature of her profession. Am I going to be needed in the same way as a production designer? You know, what is my role going to be? Here's Debbie, first with a word from our sponsor, then her interview with Ina Mayhew. Design Matters is supported in part by Heffler & Co., online at typography.com. There's nothing more critical to good design than good typography, and good typography begins with the best possible ingredients, the fonts themselves. Hefler & Co. are the designers of some of the world's most beloved typefaces, classics like Gotham and Knockout, and new designs like Operator and Decimal, typefaces that are designed to work well and work everywhere, whether you're designing a print, web, or mobile project. At typography.com, you'll find nothing but the highest quality fonts with complete families, deep character sets, and clever features to help solve design problems, as well as free tutorials to help you become a master typographer. Right now, as a Design Matters listener, you can save 15% on your next font order by using the code DESIGNMATTERS at checkout. That's all one word when you visit typography.com forward slash design matters. When it comes to movies and TV, you always hear about the lead actors, sometimes the director and the producer, maybe the writer, and very occasionally the cinematographer. But the unsung star is often the production designer, the person who gives each scene its look and feel. Ina Mayhew has worked with a lot of marquee names over the years, Spike Lee, Anna DuVernay, and Jay-Z, to name just a few. Her latest project is Heartstrings, a series on Netflix wherein each episode brings to life a song by Dolly Parton, with different sets for every episode. She joins me from her home in New York. Ina Mayhew, welcome to Design Matters. Yes, this is such a pleasure. Thank you. Ina, you were born in Brooklyn, I believe, and I think you're now living in Woodstock, New York. Is that right? I am, yes. How are you doing during this surreal and challenging time? When I'm home in my beautiful house and walking around the garden, I feel pretty good. I turn on the news and, and it's so overwhelming to think of all that's happening right now. Also, just the coronavirus. The scary part is thinking about going back to work. You know, yes. we stay very safe. We never go anywhere if we see anyone. So it's weird because we miss all the things that we would do, go to museums and theater and film and all the fun stuff. So there isn't the fun stuff. Um, we miss our friends. So it does make me focus on things that I don't usually do, which is myself and pulling my life together and, you know, kind of using this quiet time. But I do get 
mad and sad watching what's going on around me. Um, I'm sure somewhere it seeps inside as all artists and designers this time. Yes. That might influence me kind of like my past has influenced me just by listening and watching. Somehow it'll come out in some design or some process that I go through. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see in the aftermath of our moment in time what kind of work artists and designers make. Yes, I was very influenced when I was young being around my parents during the civil rights movement, not really grasping it, but kind of getting a feel for it. I was very influenced. It just makes you think differently about people in life and circumstances, and you really become aware of what's important and how to take care of each other. And I think it's really raised that awareness again. I think we kind of started to forget a little bit about our dynamics and our world was so full of media and entertainment and celebrity and almost the day-to-day people kind of got lost. And it's great that they have this voice and all this protest. And, and it's kind of making us go, oh, right, yes, of course. Why did we not pay enough attention to that? And, um, you know, and then even my personal struggle just being the heritage that I am, you know, you take it for granted a little bit just because I'm, I'm really incorporated into a lot of diversity and people of color. And so I feel very lucky that even my whole life I've been very lucky, but it wasn't always so easy. I want to talk a, a lot about how you grew up and how you became who you are. I, both of your parents are artists. Yes. Your dad is Richard Mayhew, who was a founding member of Spiral, an African-American painters group in the 1960s that included Romare Bearden, Charles Alston, and Hale Woodruff. Your mom is Dorothy Z. Mayhew, and she was also a painter and a ceramicist. What was it like growing up among so much vibrant creativity? It was just really wonderful. I'm so happy that as a child, I realized it. I was immediately intrigued. But, you know, I only knew about art and artists. So I just would sit at the corner and listen to all this really crazy, fun And I still remember all of these people sitting at my house. It's incredible. It's just (laughs) incredible. My mom would make this incredible meal. And they all were really just, I was their kid too. To this day, there is uh, one person who's still alive and always asks for me and my brother, Scott, like we're still little kids. It's so funny. Who is that? How are they doing? Calvin Douglas. He was also a part of Spiral. He is, between him and my dad, are the last two remaining people alive from that group. Uh, my dad is 96, by the way. I know. I saw that. He has a, he has a really remarkable body of work, several books. Um, for our listeners, please look into his work. It is really, really stunning. My mom was kind of the intellectual and the educator and really brought me around to see things, you know, the theater 
in museums, and she would always talk about everything and explain everything in detail. And as an artist herself, you know, she was also our mom. So she played that role, right, of taking care of us, writing all the grants, and then she did her own work. She did her own work, a lot of it later in her life. She was a watercolorist as well as a ceramicist. She sold a line, I believe, at Lord & Taylor, is that correct? She (laughs) did, of cups and dishes and some other places too. So hundreds and hundreds of designs she would do, um, as well as kind of teach me how to do watercolor. And my dad was very influenced by her in terms of the watercolor as well. I believe that your mom... Uh, introduced you to local theater very early. She took both you and your brother to a local park that put on plays for children. What kind of plays? Do you remember any of them? I do. It was called Love of Three Oranges. And um, I was, um, I guess I'll say politely a precocious child. (laughs) (laughs) What does that mean? (laughs) I I think I was um, probably maybe a little more on the bossy side, but um, she really knew how to channel, I think it's all creative energy, of course. And I loved theater as a little kid. She took us to like high school plays, community theaters, um, all of that. And uh, one little funny story. Oh, tell us. One of a dear friend of ours, she gave me a book on plays for children so, just to tell you how precocious I was, as an eight-year-old, I actually wrote out the parts for everybody and made everyone perform the play <laughs> in front That's of people who cared or didn't care. But I still actually have my little handwritten things that I did in oh. the book. Ina, that's amazing. Uh, <laughs> you have to take some pictures and send them to me. You know, I think a lot of that is because of my mom. And she was, I felt like she was kind of a bit of a historian. She really kept track of all of my father's things, which I have now, of everything he did. Writings and notes and her notes I kept. And so I just became like her. So I just kept everything as well. I'm so happy that I did to kind of have that to go back to whenever someone goes, why are you interested in this or that? It was like, it was always there for me. You know, I was always involved in theater and art. And another funny thing that I didn't tell anyone is that um, I loved jewelry. So I used to make all my own jewelry and then became a professional self-taught jewelry maker. Yes, there was a a sidebar in your career where you were also (laughs) making jewelry, which I I did want to ask you about. Uh, So it seems like you were just making and creating all through your childhood. Um, I know also when you were about five, your family moved to Italy. Your dad was studying in Florence and you took a boat to get there. What Mm -hmm. made your family decide to do that? Well, it was a very prestigious grant that he, he won and it was to study in Florence. So we, um, much to my mother's chagrin, he wanted to go right away, which was in November. So we did take a boat through the rough waters from New York to uh, Italy. I mean, I don't remember any of it because I was so little, but I do remember all the stories that she told me. So yeah, you know, it was a big deal for him to get this, this, able to study and paint. But when we were in Italy, we went to school there, my brother and I. My mom, who's Italian, 
was really the one who guided us through everything, got us our apartment and was able to speak to everyone to kind of get us through. It was not on purpose that we ended up in Italy. It was, it was a great coincidence that, you know, we got to go and visit a little bit of her family that was still there. She's first generation Italian, right? She's first generation, yeah. Um, her parents spoke very little English, so I kind of grew up in these two very extreme family dynamics. Um, she made everything. She cooked everything from scratch. And she grew up on the 116th Street and 2nd Avenue, which was Italian at the time. Anyway, I really enjoyed that time in, in Italy. It was um, a really important piece of my education. And there's a really sweet picture of my brother and I in the same room drawing. That was our thing that we did. You moved back to the United States into Rockland County, which is sort of on the way to upstate New York, and mm-hmm. you attended high school there. Yes. Was that a big culture shock for you? It's huge. such a huge difference from the Lower East Side of New York and then yes. Italy and then Rockland County. Yes. I did spend a few years when we got back in uh, Brooklyn over by Brooklyn College. So I was there and went to school, which... It, it was an interesting time, and I, I adapted mostly because I kind of connected with the, the artists in my high school. Well, that's where you discovered the theater program, right? I did, not really understanding what scenery was or how to be a part of it, but it was familiar enough that when I did kind of see it happening, I knew that, oh, great, this is really exciting, and I want to be a part of it. And, you know, I was already kind of a painter, so that world was not unfamiliar for me. And um, yes, that was, it completely changed me. You know, I was a very, very shy child. I really was happy to kind of be in an environment where I had to get outside of myself a little bit. It really forced me to work with other people. And then the bossy side of me came out and I started telling people how to design. <laughs> Now, you very quickly began designing sets for the theater program in your high school, though at the time, I believe there weren't any women in that position or young women in that position. Was that hard for you? How did you sort of break through to become a leader? I mean, I was aware of it, but because I had such a support from both my mother and father and allowing me to be who I am, which was pretty independent spirit, I just said, why can't I? You know, I hated the fact that I had to take home ec instead of shop, you know. So, you know, I was right. I just didn't understand why I couldn't build and paint and design sets, too. So I just kind of just did it without a lot of thinking about it. Your involvement in the community arts programs and the commitment that you had to your high school theater program resulted in your receiving a scholarship from the Q and Curtin Theater Program to the college of your choice. And you decided to go to the State University of New York at Purchase. I actually also went to a state college. I went to the State University of New York at Albany. Why did you pick Purchase? It was a new program of the arts. And what I somehow discovered, I'm sure my mom helped me, I don't remember, but I was just looking for an art school to go to. And I knew that they had everything there. It was the performing arts had just started. There was a dance program. There was a theater program about to happen. 
there was the visual arts, there was a film department. So it was a very specialized school. It was almost like a conservatory. And that was exactly where I wanted to be. And I didn't have to have any academic worries. So it was not my forte, but um, it was like the perfect place for me to go because all they cared about was how I was as an artist. What were you hoping to do professionally at that time? I wasn't sure. I know that from my theater study that I really wanted to be a set designer, but I already was pretty skilled at being an artist and a painter. So I was open to seeing what direction I wanted to go in. And that's why I kind of initially went into the fine arts division of Purchase College. And one of my friends there was Fred Wilson, who um, is a very accomplished artist. So he was kind of a really early influence to me, but I was surrounded by this incredible group of artists. And that's where I kind of fell into all these different groups, the, the Black Student Union, Well, that led you to the film department and meeting Charles Lane, the director Charles Lane. So I know he uh, became a fairly significant person in your life at that time. Can you tell Mm -hmm. us how you met and what happened next? I know that's a really wonderful story. You know, I really just trying to follow kind of in my parents' footprints of politics and black art and black study and and all of that, that I kind of gravitated to that group. You know, it was was another medium that I was kind of fascinated with. And what was so funny was I hung around and became a bit of a part of the film department as well as a visual arts department. And at the time, you know, all the departments were really small. So we were all friends. We all were together all the time. And that was what I loved about the community. Just this always this group of people in conversation, right? Intelligent conversation. And I just really gravitated to him. And he, for some reason, cast me, I have no idea, I was not an actor, in his short film, a place, a place in time. In time luckily, yeah. <laughs> luckily, nobody can find it. <laughs> I know. I tried. <laughs> I know. Even he was like, "Do you have a copy of that?" I go, "Yes, I do." <laughs> and it won an award. It won an it award did. for best student film. Yes, that was kind of my my toe in the water, so to speak. But I think after my first year there, it wasn't as painterly as I wanted. And, you know, I wanted to be a painter, you know, and I didn't get to do enough of it. So I actually left in search of something else, you know, as you do when you're young. You transferred to to the design technology program, right? Um, eventually, right? yes. But I yeah. left for um, a year. I did some study work at Parsons School of Design. I went to Television Studio School of New York. Oh, wow. <laughs> deep, I, deep background. Yeah. Very deep. Um, There was a lot of these really great classes and courses you could take, kind of just trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And then finally, I went back to Purchase and went into the design technology program as an overall designer. I believe that your next defining moment or unnext defining moment (laughs) came when Bob Fosse directed a scene from his film, All That Jazz, on the Purchase campus. Can you describe the scene and what you experienced and how that influenced you? 
I loved my classmates. We were all so adventurous. And so we kind of snuck into the theater, which was Theater D, where it was filming. I heard there was something going on there. And I still remember to this day being on the very top row, sneaking a peek at this filming. And I was like that wide-eyed kid going, wow, that's what I want to do. You know, I think I probably even told him. He's still a good friend of mine, and we always laugh at that moment. And I can't, we snuck in, and we would watch them film this incredible scene in big, giant circles, I remember. I uh, actually had used the, the scenery when it was over. They just left it. I used it for something I was going to do, too. I just was fascinated by this huge you know, the lights and the scenery and the acting, and it was so dynamic. I had no idea, but I said, I, I, that's what I want to do. Um, I have to say, I don't know if I'd be here today if I didn't have that moment, you know, of seeing that. Um, yeah, it was, I still can see it. Isn't it incredible to look back on your life and think that one moment, that one random completely spontaneous experience yep. changed the journey of your life. Completely. I studied a lot of costume design because I knew how to draw, and so I would do costume design. And I started designing clothes for film. And my teacher at the time, uh, Michael Cesario is his name, he was so encouraging, and he let me kind of go in that direction. And that particular class was one of the few places I was actually able to figure out film design, not so much in my other set design classes, but in that one, he allowed me to pursue that. Your, your journey to becoming a production designer included a variety of stints, including, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. sewing and designing costumes, painting scenery, building models, lighting scenery, dyeing clothes, sketching and painting. You were also a substitute teacher for a set mm -hmm. design professor. You made store displays. Um, after you graduated college, you decided to move to Los Angeles, where you got a job mm -hmm. painting scenery for the Los Angeles Opera Company. What, what was that work like? One of my really dear friends and classmates, you know, she said, hey, I have this job in L.A. painting scenery for the opera. And we, you know, obviously deep in theater. And I said, yeah, sure. I don't mind. Let's go. Not thinking of L.A. as a film place at all, just because I thought it would be fun to go there. And it was a, a crazy year when I think about all that we did. You know, I kind of lived with her and her boyfriend, and, and we painted. Wherever scenic artists were needed, we were there, and she told me about this job painting um, the walls for an, an installation at the Folk Art Museum, which was an exhibition of black folk art. And I, that, was, that was another huge eye-turner for me. I really got involved in... I love the idea of exhibition design. And then again with Mary, she befriended an art director who got us to do all of these music videos. I know. I can't <laughs> wait to talk to you about them. <laughs> Betty Davis' eyes, I like know. such an iconic video. And, um, um, and they said, we're going to go. And Fleetwood Mac. Fleetwood I mean, Mac, what, what said, video? Uh, hold me. 
told me. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. I was kind of hoping it was going to be Gypsy because that's one of my favorites yeah. and the scenes and the sets are so gorgeous, but Hold Me is also dreamy. Yeah, so this is the funny thing. They said, you want to go paint scenery for Fleetwood Mac? And I'm like, who's Fleetwood Mac? You know, I had no <laughs> idea who they were. <laughs> and we went out to the desert. I don't know if you're familiar with that video. Yes, I am. I can't remember everything we did, but I know one of my assignments was to go and get a lizard. And to, <gasps> yes. Right? That's a very pivotal moment in the video, actually. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I put it under that piece of glass. And, you know. So what, the other funny thing was, I think Mary was with me, too. We did a Volkswagen commercial. You did something with the Lort Theaters, I believe. Yes. I don't remember all the details, but I do know that somehow I was able to design a small set for... Lord Theater, teeny tiny theater, you know, everything was so small. You did everything yourself and you found everything and painted everything and built everything. So I kind of started to, you know, wiggle into the world of design. But anyway, I, after my year there, there were a few reasons why I ended up coming back to New York. You worked with the set designer, Franco Colavecchia, who worked mm-hmm. primarily designing sets for the opera. You came mm-hmm. back to New York and worked for the opera. He also did off-Broadway and regional theater. What made you decide to come back to New York at that point? Was it for this job? No, it was, there were some personal reasons why I had to come back. I kind of just picked up and left, you know, and I, I kind of need to come back to support my family a little bit and be there for them. So, um... I think I gave Franco a call to see if there was a way I could kind of get into his design studio because we had actually a really good time together at Purchase and I, I, those were the classes I was teaching was his, so I, just, I would assist him. And it was already a pretty established studio where he already had two or three assistants, so it was pretty big. But my forte was more uh, rendering and painting and model building. So that was my focus. You you were also doing quite a bit of freelance work at the time, a number of different projects. I believe you started working with Spike Lee. You started working on the TV program Showtime at the Apollo. But I believe you were doing hair and makeup. Is that correct? Yes. So you really are a jack of all trades. <laughs> well, you want, I, in my time in Rockland County, a dear friend of mine, his name is Teddy Jenkins, He did fashion, hair, and makeup. Anyway, I would help him a little bit. He was an African-American makeup artist. So there were very few of them at the time. So somehow he got into the world of Spike Lee and he brought me with him. And the funny thing is, is that I was hair and makeup on that music video. I know. (laughs) He didn't know who I was. I think I probably tried to talk to him. He wasn't exactly approachable. So I just kind of just hung out and watched. You've since worked on several projects with him, Mm -hmm. um, including some commercials and his films, Girl 6, Get on the Bus, and Clockers. Um, What's Mm -hmm. the biggest thing you've learned from Spike Lee? He completely said, you know, I trust you. You're the designer. Do it. There wasn't a lot of back and forth or collaboration at all. He really felt that that was my job. And I knew what I was doing, and he trusted it. 
Another defining moment occurred when you bumped into your former classmate, Charles Lane in Macy's, of all places, given that you also worked there. Um, he was about to start shooting his first feature, a black and white, nearly silent film named Sidewalk Stories about a young African-American man raising a small child after her father is murdered. How you convinced him to hire you is, I think, one of the greatest pieces of um, research I've ever found. <laughs> so can you, can you explain that? Can you share that with our audience? I think that this will be very inspiring to anybody that is I, needing some motivation to make something happen in their lives. I think persistence was an understatement. When I ran into him and we were talking and um, I said, what, you're doing a film? You have to hire me. I have to be on it. And he was like, mm, okay, well, wait, let me see. Okay, what's your phone number? And I think I must have called him. I probably did call him every day <laughs> until I said, no, I want to be on this film. I have to be on this film. You have to hire me. And then I would tell him, I, I said, this is what I've done. And you have to bring me on. I'm, you have to. I'm going to come on your movie. I don't care what you have to say. I'm going to be on that film. And I think he finally, I wore him down. And um, although there was a designer on it already, he brought me on. I definitely talked him into hiring me. I was not going to take no for an answer. Absolutely not. You worked with Charles quite a bit after that. Um, yes. the, the film went on to win the Audience Award at the Cannes Film Festival, won a lot of awards. Yeah. Um, you then were a visual consultant on his next film called True Identity, which was a big budget film. And then yes. you designed an American Playhouse TV film uh, titled The Upper Room. And I think that's really when you began your career, your your big career as a production designer. Yes. Well, you know what's great about knowing Charles and being his friend, um, I felt comfortable and confident. You know, sometimes, you know, you're not sure. At least I had his ear when I wasn't sure about something. I was like, what do you think of this? Or how about this location? Or even on, on sidewalk stories. So there was, a, there was a nice comfort level. So it allowed me to figure things out a little bit, um, not be afraid to make a mistake. You know, there's a little bit of fear. Is he going to like this? Is he not going to like this? So I liked that I had that support. It was a really great way to start. You know, because I didn't go to film school, because I was a theater designer, it was always a bit of convincing, you know, and really having to show um, what I've done and what I can do through other types of design. Um, so I was always prepared for a fairly elaborate presentation. Did you feel like you had to overcompensate for something? I think a little bit. I think because I didn't go in the formal direction of film school, that I went in um, a theater way, and I didn't have probably what they thought, these producers thought would be the experience you would have to be a production designer. I didn't work up the ranks like a lot of people do. Like they start as an art department PA, then they become an art director. I just went in and just started designing. I didn't go up the ranks at all, except for when I was a visualist uh, consultant and then art director, uh, rock director on sidewalk stories. So yeah, I, I do feel that I kind of paid my dues by being an assistant for so many years that I didn't need to go up the ranks 
I was on Clockers, an art director, for the same reason I was a visual consultant on Charles, because Spike Lee wanted me there. He wanted a representative in the art department that was person of color and all of that in his kind of eyes and ears. So I feel that I had just really wonderful support and confidence from these directors. And I learned everything I could and watching all the other things that you have to manage <laughs> as a designer. How do you assert your vision and your authority with a director, given that so many directors are control freaks? <laughs> well, I guess I do my homework very, very thoroughly. So once I read a screenplay, let's say, and I have an idea, I back it up and I will fully research it so that I have an actual answer for all the questions or like why you want to do this or where do you want to go or what my concept overall is. Like for Girl Six with him in particular, where they lived and what part of town they lived in and all of that, um, you know, why do they live in the village or why does she live in the village? Well, because she's an actor and I think that that was affordable. You know, so you go through and then I want it to look like this and this is the color palette. So I was very prepared and made sure that I could convince them of going in this direction. You primarily started working on smaller independent films and slowly began to work on bigger budget movies, as well as a variety of television shows. Just some of your films include 12 movies with Tyler Perry, including <laughs> Colored Girls, Diary of a Mad Black Woman, Medea's Big Happy Family, Medea Goes to Jail, Medea's Family Reunion. Um, right. You also worked on Tyler Perry's television show, House of Pain, Avi DuVernay's television series, Queen Sugar. And most recently, you worked with Dolly Parton on the Netflix series Dolly Parton's Heartstrings, as well as the upcoming Dolly's Christmas on the Square, which will be out later this year. Uh, you also just completed the Aretha Franklin biopic starring uh, Jennifer Hudson, a movie called Respect. Um, you know, what are the most important considerations when you're creating a set for a movie or a television show? It all comes from the character that we discuss, let's say. So once you read a script, the things that are not necessarily in a script is where people live and what these people are like and what are their lives and what's their lives before. So that was, those are always my first questions. So when I'm thinking about Aretha Franklin and her home, so I start to go, well, what does that home look like? How long did she live there? Where is it? You know, so I ask myself these questions. And then from there, I start looking for hard research. Even if it's something fictional, um, like in Dolly Parton Heartstrings, is you start with the motivation of that person and how they live. And, you know, I try to build a, a life for each of them, you know, um, a backstory so that you understand why they're here, why did they get there. And so then there's an overall style to the film. Once you start to put those little pieces together of these characters, then I start to think of what would be great as an overall look for each of the pieces. Is it an upscale direction? Is it a funky world? What's the color palette? You know, it all kind of rushes 
in my head at once. So as I'm reading it, it's, it's like already designed. So I have a really clear look just by reading the script. And I always tell everyone, I said, I wish I could just have a projector of my brain and I can just shoot out all the ideas on a giant screen somewhere so that everyone can get it. So then the process is really explaining the design. More and more, I have to do fairly big presentations now for everything, for each of the episodes, let's say, for Dolly Parton Heartstrings and, and really to back up the design. Because I don't always think that there's always a visual idea of what they're thinking about when they're writing or when directors are thinking about the show. So they need, you know, they need me to give them that. They need me to give them the visuals, the visual backup. Is it true that Dolly Parton sat in on your production meetings while making Heartstrings? Yes, she did. I have to say. <laughs> Is it intimidating? Incredibly intimidating. She was sitting at the front of the table along with, you know, all the producers. She's completely serious and intense and actually listens to every word you say. She looks right at you and will question like, oh, I'm not sure if I want to go in that direction or... Yes, I hear you, but completely intimidating. She'd be on set a lot. Wow. And she didn't have any hesitation about, no, I don't think that that's what we want to do. Clear. Or yes, I love that. That's a great idea. All the design boards for Heartstrings went by her. So she approved everything. Every location. You did eight completely different sets, different time periods, different, totally different kinds of characters that all felt like they would live under an umbrella of dolliness. It was a personal challenge. <laughs> I, <laughs> I brought in you know, two art directors, two decorators kind of. I'm not gonna say all that worked out perfectly. I just was driven to get it. I really wanted to do all these different worlds. Like I was really, it drove me. It was 14 days of prep, 14 days to shoot. But then in the middle of that, the next episode would begin. And I think we all realized that that was probably a little ambitious um, to, to treat it like an episodic television show where you had standing sets to all brand new worlds. They're really like little movies, honestly. Yeah, you know, that's where all those years of experience comes in of about prepping and timing and getting it done right and what's a priority and what should we lose and, you know, what do we focus on? It was actually fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of different worlds, you worked with Ava DuVernay along with Jay-Z and Beyonce on this cinematic narrative short Family Feud, which is a futuristic saga beginning in the year 2444 and then goes backward in time to the year 2050 um, when a group of women headed up by an adult Blue Ivy Carter uh, embark upon a major reformation of America when they rewrite the Constitution. If only that could really happen, right? <laughs> I know. Um, I know. Um, Talk about the production of that a bit. It's such a beautiful, dreamy, futuristic, stunning set. And how is it also to work with so many big egos? And or let's let me put it a different way: big personalities. <laughs> right. Um, well, Ava, who is an amazing, full of energy 
huge personality, just loving and embracing and full of direction. Like, this is what I want, you know. The design process did have to go through the approval of of Jay-Z in particular. I didn't have a personal relationship with him so much. It was mostly um, with Ava. So what was tricky about it was just the timing that we had. We didn't have a lot of time. So I had to come up with an idea with Ava's blessing, of course, of how do we show the future? And I started to think about a project I did a million years ago, the very early part of my career, that the future is the past. You know, a lot of things that are new have been around forever. So I started going in looking for a futuristic house or a beautiful, ornate, historic house. Anyway, that was the initial concept, and um, we had two directions, and she liked going kind of in the reverse and then adding futuristic elements within the world, right, and um, kind of keeping the classic look. Because you think about Europe, right? That's been around forever. It's never going to change. But what would change is a chair or a light bulb or the curtains or, you know, some small element that makes you feel like you're in another world. In my dreamy, wandery thing, which is what I do a lot, I was walking around our soundstage that we were filming at, and I saw this geodesic dome. And um, again, there's a side of me that's never changed. And I went with the producer, and I said, let's go in there. And he goes, go in? I said, well, let's just walk in. Let's see what's going on in there. And it's just this incredible world of projections. And I was like, maybe we could do one of the scenes in here, you know, with a lot of convincing and saying... You know, a way to get another otherworldliness, you know, in this kind of surround of imagery. So all of that, you know, coming up with ideas and that she was happy with it. And the one thing that Jay-Z did want was he wanted to shoot in a Catholic church in New York City. So that was a challenge and also on a Sunday. Why did he want to do that? I know that part of the story is about church and faith and... And all of that. And that's when, when Blue Ivy is in, in the scenes yes. of, of that. Yeah. They're right. They're right. The little yes. Blue Ivy, the not Blue the older Ivy. Blue right. Ivy. The actual Blue Ivy, who looks so adorable. And I have to say that it was a very small set. There were very few people. They were just there. There wasn't a lot of bodyguards, just really open. But um, finding a desanctified church in Manhattan was a challenge. But one of the things that I really was trying to explore and solving a problem as designers want to do is really, how do I make this feel like the future? So I'm glad that they came across. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It's beautiful. Ina, the last thing I want to talk to you about is your next big release out on Christmas Day, the film Respect. The movie is about Aretha Franklin's early life. Now, I, I wasn't sure in, in the research that I did, is it true you found the exterior of Aretha's house, her actual house? We went to look at her real house, which is in Detroit, but we couldn't film there. So we found a very close duplicate in Atlanta. There's certain things I get obsessed with, and that was one of them, was to match that exterior. I I would carry that photo with me of the exterior going, okay, how do we, you know, so we took this incredibly close match and just added 
some of the elements on. I added um, some columns and some other things to make it match exactly the outside. And then you built the interior? Yes. And was that also from photographs or did you reimagine the way the house might look? The art director went up there to take a look at what the house really looked like inside. It wasn't really something we were able to duplicate exactly, but we took some of the elements and the spirit of the house. It was our biggest challenge. I can't wait to see it. Yeah. How do you envision uh, the film industry moving forward? Do you think there's going to be changes? Are, are you mm. planning to go back to work anytime soon? I have a... Um, funny you ask... My agent called me yesterday. Um, you know, I, I had a feeling that things were going in the direction that I'm seeing a lot of press about, which is keeping things smaller, staying mostly on sound stages, and then incorporating all the green screen and the special effects and visual effects and... Um, I luckily have um, made great relationships with visual effects people because I have to do so much anyway through all of these shows that I'm partnering with them more and more. So I feel at least comfortable in that world. But that's what I think the direction is going to be temporarily is switching technologies and film crews will be smaller and going kind of back to independence so I kind of had to <laughs> go, okay, so, you know, am I going to be needed in the same way as a production designer? Or, you know, what is my role going to be if suddenly they go to visual banks of photos to use as backdrops? It's a big conversation that I'm having with my, both unions, 829 and 800, of how we're going to keep our, uh, our foot in the door as production designers, scouting for locations in a different way now, you know? So yes, I think there's gonna be a lot of changes. I'm a little hesitant to, you know, everyone's like, let's get back to work. And I'm going, hmm, I don't know how to do that. You know, we're all like kindergartners, right? We're all smashed together in a room. The art department, we're like this close to each other all the time. I, so, yes, I do have a couple of things percolating, but I'm not anxious to get back to work. Well, I, I truly look forward to seeing what you do next and want to thank you so much for making such beautiful work in the world and for joining me today on Design Matters. Um, thank you so much. Thank you, Ian. It is such a pleasure. You can see Ina Mayhew's latest work on the Netflix series Heartstrings and in theaters this Christmas in the movie Respect. This is the 16th year we've been broadcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Special thanks to the sponsor of this episode, Heffler & Co., Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. In non-pandemic times, the show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts, Masters in Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiland.